HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Mutual aid matters because people matter is the simplest answer. I am tired of people just saying black lives when all of us have names. All of us have mothers and fathers and sisters and hobbies and favorite movies and favorite jokes and we're people. We're human beings and we need to be treated like we're human beings. And I feel that other charities tend to focus on the big macro picture, right? Sort of looking at everything and going, how do we fix this systemic problem? Whereas I feel that mutual aid is more about the individual. I do not require anybody to give me a reasoning for why they need the funds. If they come to me, they need it. If they are asking, they need it. And that is the justification that I've been giving to every single one of our donors. And that is a justification that I feel should be sufficient for all people. Because if someone is in need, they are in need. They don't need to justify their humanity to you or anyone. This week, we're talking about mutual aid. You just heard Catherine Robinson, the founder of Black Women Exhale, summing up why mutual aid is so crucial in today's world. Black Women Exhale is a mutual aid fund supporting 40 Black women and FEMS. The organization's goal is to offer sustained aid to marginalized individuals so that they can empower themselves and claim a better future and life. Instead of taking a top-down, one-size-fits-all approach to meeting people's needs, mutual aid enables community members to support one another directly. People work together on a grassroots level to provide resources like food, housing, and disaster relief to those in need. And mutual aid groups often go even further, organizing themselves against systems that create unjust inequitable conditions in the first place. During the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, mutual aid groups have sprung up in communities across the country to support those who have lost their jobs and are grappling with financial instability and food insecurity. This week, we have stories about mutual aid and the many shapes and sizes it can take. You'll hear about how people are stepping up to feed their neighbors and keep businesses in their communities afloat. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First up this week, we examine why the need for mutual aid has become so urgent in the past several months. 
Kevin Chang Barnum talks to a graduate student at Harvard University who is researching the availability of food for low-income families during the pandemic. One of my work colleagues had been interviewing somebody who has taken to just eating cornmeal for dinner and coffee for breakfast. Like, that's the point a lot of people are at. That's my friend Gabby Lastris, a graduate student in public policy. She's currently a researcher for the Massachusetts Food Access During COVID-19 Project. In that role, she conducts weekly interviews with low-income families in Massachusetts to see how COVID-19 has affected their ability to get food. The goal is to make sure the needs of these families are heard by organizations and policymakers. One of the first trends that we saw emerge was kind of the specific groups that are having the hardest time economically. One is undocumented workers. If you don't have documentation, you're not eligible for unemployment insurance, which means that if you've lost your job or jobs uh, in a lot of cases, you're not getting any source of income. One analysis done by Northwestern's Institute for Policy Research looked at people who have difficulty accessing food. The numbers are a little tough to gauge because the Institute had to compare data from multiple sources, but they suggest a staggering change. In February, 8.5% of households in the U.S. lacked the resources to obtain sufficient and healthy food. After the pandemic spread more widely in the country, that number more than doubled to 23%. For households with children, it was even higher, 29.5%. School is often a source of food for kids, especially low-income kids who are in free or reduced lunches at public schools. That's a source of food that's gone. Elderly and disabled people also face particular challenges. Many of them used to rely on community centers for food and now can't leave their homes for health reasons. For example, there's one woman who says that, you know, she has food delivered to her apartment, except sometimes it shows up hours after it was supposed to, so she spends the whole day waiting without anything to eat. Even when families have access to food pantries, Gabby told me that sometimes the food is expired. It can also be hard to find meals that meet allergy and dietary restrictions. And not getting enough food is not just a problem nutritionally. It affects mental health, too. And a lot of these people, this is the first time they've had to kind of ask for help or rely on help for getting food. So there is, we're hearing a lot of kind of shame or embarrassment about having to be on food stamps for the first time, having to go to pantries for the first time. Gabby says that if people want to help, they should educate themselves about what's going on in their area and consider supporting understaffed food pantries. She also expressed the importance of understanding how our actions impact other people. One woman Gabby interviewed had to wipe down surfaces in a store for her job. That woman and many of her coworkers contracted COVID-19. Which isn't to say you shouldn't go to stores, but it's kind of a new awareness and understanding of when you do, like think about the people who are there kind of cleaning up after you and how that affects them and their families and their ability to, you know, even pay medical bills or put food on the table and and all of those other things. To learn more about Gabby's research and read her team's blog, you can go to massfoodaccess.org. For our next story, we see how mutual aid groups have popped up in response to widespread protests across the U.S. Will Hartman reports on efforts to keep the Black Lives Matter movement alive, strong, and well-provisioned. 
2020 has been, to say the very least, exhausting. After three months staying at home during the COVID pandemic, the country erupted in protests against racist policing. Many of us, especially active protesters, are left feeling drained. Many new groups have shaped their missions to combat this fatigue. The Black Chef movement was founded in June 2020 by black chefs in New York City who felt the need to fuel and refuel protesters. I spoke with co-founder Rashida McCallum about their movement. Generally, we're out there. We're on the front lines. We're um, bringing food. We're collecting food from all over New York City from different chefs, and we're bringing it to different demonstrations. So we're at different demonstrations. We just sent some food to the Occupy City Hall. And so we'll do different demonstrations like that. But we'll also hope at Meditating for Black Lives, which is a visual slash demonstration that happens on Sunday and people are just there meditating and getting the chance to reset. So we try to really cover all different bases of the Black Lives Matter movement. Rashida's background is in nutrition. She graduated from culinary school and immediately engaged with underserved communities to improve diets and eating habits. Her dedication to healthy foods is a major factor in her commitment to feeding protesters. We want to make sure, especially because black and brown people were impacted negatively by COVID-19, that we're giving them food that's going to provide substance to their health. So we're very conscious about what we give out. So most of the time we're giving, if we do give meat, it's lean meats. Most of our foods are plant-based. Uh, if we give out snacks, we'll give out something like trail mix or granola bars. Uh, a lot of our chefs, based on their background, they may want to add a little twist on it. We had a chef, Chef Anna, who made a curry vegan um, potato salad. You know, But we like to make sure that it's nutrient-rich and it's health conscious at all times. Rashida and the Black Chef movement are doing crucial work in order to keep protesters going. However, they recognize that eventually the protests will slow down and their organization will have to shift their day-to-day -day operations in order to continue serving those in need. Rashida shared her projections for the future of the Black Chef movement. Continue to spread our knowledge and really bend out. Because there's always a movement happening in every county, in every state, in every city. And it's important that these activists are being supported through food. Um, in addition, when the protests die down, we don't know when that's going to happen. But if it does happen, there's a lot of things in our communities that need support. So we want to be at local polls. And when there's voters on long lines, we want to be there supporting them with food so that, you know, they're not discouraged to go home because, you know, it's too hot out or whatever the case may be. In addition, right now, we're, we're working towards getting a, a space so that we can prep our food in one location. In addition, we want to have local community cooking classes and nutrition classes for inner city youth. We want to be there to really support our community. To learn more about the Black Chef Movement or to support their GoFundMe, visit their Instagram at Black Chef Movement. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3. This episode of Meat in 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. 
Welcome back to Meet and Three. Next up, we bring you an excerpt of Feast Your Ears with Harry Rosenblum. He recently spoke with home gardener Lucy Lesser. When the pandemic began, she provided mutual aid by giving out free seedlings to her Brooklyn neighbors. Today's theme, grow your own and help your neighbors. From regrowing scallions on your windowsill to tomatoes on the fire escape to fully tilling up your lawn to grow food, this spring there's been an explosion of home gardening during the global pandemic. Whether it's a response to scarcity in the markets or wanting to stay home and not be in public or take on more self-sufficiency, people all over are growing more and more food. I had a great conversation over the weekend with Lucy Lesser. For the past eight years, she's been growing loads of her own food in Brooklyn. She's adamant that everyone has room to grow something, even if you don't have any outdoor space. This spring, she distributed over 1,500 seedlings to other people in her neighborhood so they too can grow something. It's fun and rewarding to grow even one or two plants yourself, especially if you can eat it. So you you ran a little bit of a program of giving away seedlings for free this year. Is that right? Yes. So as soon as the pandemic started ramping up in March, I had just been starting my seeds. And then as things started getting really like, you, you know, for a while in New York, there was just not stuff on the shelves. And there, there was also just a lot of anxiety about going to stores, which there still is. And, yeah. you know, so many people losing their jobs that I was just kind of betting that more people will want to grow their own food. Um, and I just figured if I could decrease the barrier of entry to gardening for people with free seedlings, that maybe I could help some people change their connection to their food and where their food comes from. I also was really fortunate that I got a huge donation of seeds from like this amazing woman in Jamaica, Queens, who has a seed library called, uh, she's on Instagram, it's at Reclaim Seed NYC. Hmm. I literally got in touch with her through some New York mutual aid groups and explained to her what I was doing. And she just sent me a giant delivery of seed. Do you think that the, the coronavirus pandemic has sort of like, I don't know whether what, what the right word is, like amplified the ability for you and other folks who are doing similar and related things in urban areas to like, have you guys started to connect and has that been amplified because of the coronavirus? Um, I would say yes, uh, connecting to other people that have knowledge. If you can connect with other people and talk to them and start to learn the language, it's pretty great. What else do you get aside from the nutrition and the deliciousness by growing your own food? Because there are other things that come with that. It really helped my mental state, and that was also a big part of why I wanted to share seedlings with people. If people take this plant, though, and it, like, dies, but, like, and they didn't get much out of it, but like they really enjoyed watching it grow. Like to me, that's enough. Food is political. What you put in your body is political. What you have access to is, and it needs to be more equal. And people need access to these resources. And it shouldn't even be a question. There are a lot of benefits to growing things for yourself and your community. Don't be afraid to give it a try. You've got plenty of time to start plants now for the late summer and fall. You can reach out to Lucy via Instagram at Lucy Laser, L-U-C-Y-L-A-S-E-R. To learn more about how to start your own urban home garden, listen to episode 184 of Feast Your Ears on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
In our final story this week, Emily Kunkel explores how one mutual aid fund is helping formerly incarcerated entrepreneurs. We're human beings and we get discriminated against on so many different platforms. Like it's, you know, it's the SBA is one, but there's so many platforms. There's Airbnb, there's banks, there's apartments, there's everything, you know, so I guess this was just the straw that broke the camel's back. That's Bridgette Simpson, author, activist, entrepreneur, and co-creator of the formerly incarcerated Small Business Fund. Back in April, thousands of business owners were told that they would not be eligible for a small business association loan solely because they had a criminal record. When, when they said those words, that there would be relief, right? Like, we were so excited. Like, people had hope. They had, you know, joy for a second until it was smashed when the SBA application was released. And, you know, and question five and six pretty much negated our hope and told us not to even apply. So you couldn't, um, you can begin to imagine what that felt like as a business owner that has employees, that it didn't matter if your employees were formerly incarcerated, if they got a speeding ticket or not, that now their lives and their livelihoods would be impacted by yours. Something that you paid for already, that you served your time for, that you paid your debt to society. Now your employees are paying for your debt that was already paid. For many of these business owners, discrimination is what pushed them towards entrepreneurship in the first place. Between 60 and 70 percent of people remain unemployed one year after leaving prison. Those that do find employment are rarely paid a living wage. Starting your own business, though challenging, can be one answer for those unable to find work. You know, like this system working just the way that it was set up to work, right? Like they need a revolving door. So that's why there are little to no opportunities for people like us, right? There's little to no opportunities because they're counting on us, counting on our bodies to come back and to be, you know, um, to be recycled through the criminal justice system. Because after all, it's about dollars, right? Like it's about how much money they get to make off of bodies in cages. So they don't want us to succeed. Success is not the destination they're looking for us to to reach. Bridgette and her team are hoping to provide a structure outside the system. Funded by a GoFundMe page, the team has created a grant to connect formerly incarcerated businesses to COVID relief. So far, the grant has received hundreds of applications from across the country. While the fund isn't solely limited to food businesses, restaurants from Memphis to New York to Chicago have applied. Beyond restaurant ownership, many formerly incarcerated people find themselves working in the food industry due to numerous culinary anti-recidivism programs and the industry's absence of degree requirements. For our mutual aid specifically, it's the whole idea that community can have one another. We don't always have to be so reliant on the systemic of just like the, the places that already exist, the systems that are already in place, we don't have to be so highly dependent on them. And what I mean like um, by that is, 
For example, the very same banks that we patronize on a daily basis, we have car loans, mortgages, we have all different type of um, responsibilities from these banks are the same banks that denied us access, right? So in this moment in time, we said as community, as a community of formerly incarcerated folks, as a community of marginalized folks, let us build something where we can help and assist each other without having to rely upon you know, on, on a government entity that left us out in the first place. As Bridget points out, discrimination against formerly incarcerated people is rooted in racism. It's a direct racial discrimination as well, because the people that are most disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system are Black folks, right? We can look at the numbers. We're a minority, but you can look at the numbers. In the prison system, we are the majority. Like according to CBS News, they said 40% of the Black-owned businesses are not even expected to survive coronavirus. And I would challenge them to dig to dig a little deeper to examine if that 40% are the formerly incarcerated business owners that weren't granted SBA funds, weren't granted disaster relief funds. Their GoFundMe has received donations from over 1,500 people and has even received social media attention from celebrities such as No Name. With over $80,000 raised, Bridget is hopeful. So, uh, we really just want to make sure that, you know, we have seats at the table. And if we don't have a seat at the table, us creating a new table and a new platform for us to have seats. So that's what we're just looking for, our, our right to exist. If folks are going to bet on some people, I think the passion between us, like I think that that's definitely something they they can bet on. To learn more about the formerly incarcerated small business fund, please see the link in our episode description. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum, Will Hartman, Tosh Kimmel, and Emily Kunkel. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write to us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>